This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life. As you know by now, it's a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions, whatever's on your heart or mind. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340 340- 9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Uh, Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, Since it's Friday, we've got church tonight. Uh, We're going to, I'm going to be teaching out of second Peter chapter one tonight. You can watch it live stream at calvarysa.com. Uh, and then on um, Sunday, uh, we'll be in. I'm going to be in First Peter. I'm sorry, First Timothy, chapter three, uh, where I get to talk about me. I get to talk about pastors. I'm not really going to talk about me, but but I'm going to talk about the office of pastor in that section where Paul is talking about order in the church. How do we worship and? Uh, we move to overseers or pastors in our study today. Hey, if your church is meeting, you got to go. Wherever you go to church, um, it's time to branch out, get back into the house of God, um, meet with the other people. Like, again, it's not the same. Uh, you know, we got to be a little bit passive on all the affection, the hugging and the handshaking. But um, it's time for Christians to get back in church. I hope you get to go and um, hope you're blessed. I pray that you will be. Let me get right to questions. I'd love to close out the week with a lot of your phone calls. Our first question comes from Oliver. And Oliver is a skeptic. He says, how do you defend Christianity as the only true religion when all other religions use the trump card of faith? Now, before I answer that, Olive, we've got a phone caller holding, so I'd rather go to the phone call first. I'll come back and get your question next. We've got Alexis calling from Converse. Alexis, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. Thank you for your time on the radio show. Um, Ah. A few graduating, so my question, a few graduating medical students and I, we were going over first Thessalonians chapter 4 last night, and we got to verse 11 where it talks about making it our ambition to lead a quiet life. We weren't really sure if that was only in regard to not gossiping and in the context of minding our own business. Um, I listened to your 2002 message, and it seems like that was maybe the only context and implication. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I even looked back on, um, because I know the women's uh, ministry, uh, Miss Linda McMillan also went through it too, and she summed it up nicely with like not looking to our left or our right, um, and then as future physicians, advocacy and sharing our voice might play a part, and we're not really trying to overthink it, but we're hoping for some clarification and biblical guidance. Okay. Thank you, Alexis. I'll do the best I can. Um, you know, one of the things we have to look at, the, the, the whole context of the passage, 
And uh, at the beginning of, of this letter, Paul has been talking to the, the churches in Thessalonica about their witness. You know, um, the, the whole world knows. They, they know how you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. So this is about witness. And he starts in the ninth verse about brotherly love. We don't need to write you. You're doing a great job. You love one another. Uh, not only that, but you love uh, all the brothers throughout Macedonia. And then urge to more uh, and more. So he gets real practical in verse 11 when he says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Now, Paul mentions three things here that are designed to help us remain in God's perfect will. Um, If you're looking at a King James Alexis, it uses the words uh, we study. Um, um, I think the NIV is a better translation. In other words, make this your goal. Now, ambition, while not usually a word associated with Christians, this is a good ambition. We need to be eager to lead a quiet life. Now, the reason we're doing this is to protect our witness. And quiet is good. And the idea is that we are going to be at peace. Instead of being people that are are arguing or debating, now this is especially, I think, significant, Alexis, for for those of us who, who are on varying social platforms, social media platforms, Um, You know, we can snipe back and forth at each other and we can argue and we can debate. Um, But what Paul is saying basically is instead of being contentious, be peacemakers with others. Um, To be quiet is to be opposite of a world that tries to keep us busy constantly. And we know that we live in a really, really busy, loud world. Noise is everywhere. And Paul is simply saying that we need to live with that aura of the peace of God with us all the time. It's a peace that will be attractive to people who uh, are, are sort of lost in the world that we live in. And Alexis, in the world as we know it today, with this uh, coronavirus pandemic, with people who are frightened, uh, the Christian who leads a quiet life, a Christian who has the peace of God, is going to stand out more and more. So that's the first application there. And I think we need always to remember that, that um, if the peace of God is not ruling and reigning in your life, your life isn't going to be quiet at all. Now, when he shifts gears a little bit in the next part of the sentence is to mind your own business, he's saying, look in rather than look out. Uh, we're so busy looking out at other people. We're trying to find the flaws in other people. And... Um, the, the truth is we, we need to look into our own hearts. I tell our church here, Alexis, all the time that when when the Holy Spirit is working in your life, you're going to be looking in. When the unholy spirit is working in your life, you're going to be looking out at the faults or the, the problems other people has. And, you know, it, you've, you've really got to be careful to mind your own business. If you're not then your witness is going to fail. And then finally, he says, the third thing is to work with your hands, uh, just as we told you, verse 12 says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. Um, We need to be men and women who work hard. Hard work has always been a part of God's plan, and I think we need to start looking at work as a good thing. And uh, he's simply saying people are looking, so um, live a quiet life. Uh, work with your hands um, and be sure uh, that you're minding your own business rather than the business of others. And the whole idea, and you get all the way down to verse 12, is so that unbelievers, those on the outside of the church looking in, will see you. And in the process, uh, Alexis, they will have um, a good example of what being a Christian is all about. Thank you, Alexis. I appreciate the call early very, very much. Let me get back to Oliver's question. How do you defend Christianity as the only true religion when all religions use the faith card? Oliver, two things. Faith is, and you're right, religion is at the heart of it a faith issue, but God doesn't want us to be dumb. He doesn't want us to check our brains in. So it's not, well, you just have to believe. But you see, faith is based on evidence. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And and all we have to do as as Christians is look at the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that means our faith is based on solid evidence. It's not just crossing our fingers and hoping that what we believe is true. So uh, we, we, we actually, Oliver, don't defend Christianity. We simply declare it. And Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Uh, Muhammad didn't say that. Buddha didn't say that. Confucius didn't say it. Joseph Smith didn't say it. All we have to do is believe based on the overwhelming evidence. Now, even people who aren't yet Christians, all they have to do is look at the cross. You know, I've had people say, uh, well, well, how do I know Jesus is true? I mean, it could be like all the other religions. Well, well, Oliver, you and people who think like that, you've got to be honest enough intellectually to find out for yourself. Don't just ask questions like this. Find the answers. That's what happened when I got saved. You know, I got saved. I had an encounter with Jesus Christ, Oliver. It was very personal. It was very real. It was when I was at the lowest point in my life by far, running away from home, and I had an encounter with him. But, you know, when I got up from that encounter, I was changed. So I had a personal experience. But beyond the personal experience... I got up, I'm a really logical person, I got up and I had to find out if my experience was real. How do I know that what I'm feeling or what I experience is real? And I dug in for dear life, I dug in to find out if if the story about Jesus was true. I knew I was saved, I knew I was going to spend the rest of my life serving him, but I didn't know who he was. And Oliver, all you have to do is, with an honest heart, an open mind, find out for yourself what's true. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, then we're all lost. Don't read a bunch of religious scholars. Find out for yourself. Look at the evidence. Let me suggest a book for you, Oliver, that's not too difficult. It won't take too much of your time. Uh, it's a, a, a book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Now, there are lots of other books out there that are far more scholarly than that, but, but Lee Strobel did a great job with that. He, too, was a journalist. He was a skeptic. Um, uh, he just didn't understand this whole concept of religion. Um, but his wife got saved. So he was honest enough to investigate. Now, clearly God gives us the faith to believe. Faith, Ephesians 2 says, is a gift from God. But then, as a result of giving that faith, he asks you to receive his grace, his unmerited favor. And all you have to do is find out if the offer he's making is true, if it's legitimate. And I can tell you it is. But you've got to find out for yourself. So if you run into a Muslim and says, well, I just have faith in Allah, ask him what that faith is based on. It's going to be based on the Quran, but not only is it going to be based on the Quran, but it's going to be based on what has um, been crammed down their throats their whole lives. But ask where the evidence is. Ask a Mormon. Where's the evidence? Well, it's a burning in the bosom. No, I want evidence that what Joseph Smith wrote what he said happened to him is true. Where's the evidence? And Oliver, I can go directly to an empty tomb and work backwards from there. And honestly, it becomes really, really easy. And there's one other thing. We've got the Bible. It's not the Koran. We've got a Bible that is internally consistent. It has survived now for as much as 5,000 years. 2,000 or nearly 2,000 in the New Testament. It's internally consistent. There are no contradictions. All we have to do is check it out. Find out for yourself. If you'll do that, Oliver, then instead of defending Christianity, you'll just be declaring it yourself. Be honest enough to find out. 
Thank you for the call. 340-9585. Let's go to Cindy calling on line one. Cindy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron. It's happy Friday again. <laughs> church day. I like it. I, I love coming to church on Friday nights. You know what? I've been thinking about Noah ever since uh, Thursday morning when I sit and have my coffee and I read about the study that we did the night before. And I've got a few things. One... I'm wondering, when was it, what month was it in season, do you think, that he finally got out of the ark? Because it says uh, this month and then later this month and then that. And the reason I was asking that was I was wondering if all the trees would have had time to, you know, to be in bloom, that they could have something to eat. And the other thing I was thinking about, when they were in the ark, and and they know that they're going to get out pretty soon, but God keeps, you know, having them wait another week and another week. I'm wondering if the food supply was getting really low, and it was just another Mm -hmm. way that they were having to to learn, hey, God's got this. It looks bad, but it's probably, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right, but you have to trust him. And then I'm really thinking about when they got out of the ark, I'm wondering if they kind of stood nearby it, hung out, camped out by it, or if they tried to get away from it. It's like as quick as they could. Mrs. Noah's going, let's get out of here as fast as we can. And then they get out of there, and they're like maybe a day or two or, you know, who knows how long away from the ark, the first rainstorm that comes up. I wonder if they were thinking, wow, I wonder if we should have gone so far away from the ark. Even though God did promise them he would never flood the earth again, there's still that, you know, that kind of like, "Uh uh-oh, it's raining again type of thing. So... I've got a bunch more, but I'll just leave you with that for now. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. <laughs> she thinks a lot. I love her questions. Um, a, a few things about about Noah and, and the Ark. You know, I I was uh, when I was going through it this time preparing the study. Uh, I kept thinking, I wonder, you know, when they when they go into this new world and there's no place to live, you know, they would have had a house and 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 been comfortable, relatively so, in the ancient world. Uh, before the flood, and and after the flood, you know they go into world and there's nothing. They got to start from scratch building stuff. And I thought, well, maybe they use the ark sort of like an RV, so they'd have shelter over their head, just so maybe there was a little bit of familiarity, you know, just a little bit of home until they could build something else. Uh, personally, Cindy, I think that Moses, I'm sorry, Noah was so um, eager um, to get out that uh, they made building shelter uh, a priority. Now, um, the food sources, um, I'm certain food was very scarce. We don't think about this. You know, we have a picture in our mind. If you've got little children's books about Noah's flood and coming off the ark, it's got pictures of trees and vegetation. But half the world has been devastated by a flood after... there's been a cataclysmic event that would have instantly caused the North and the South Poles to freeze. Instantly. Everything would have been, it would have been like a desert wasteland. And so for sure, food sources would have been scarce. Now remember, they had animals that they were sacrificing. Seven kinds of clean animals that they could sacrifice. So they would offer the sacrifices, but, but just like the Levites who could, who could eat from the, the, the food that was sacrificed, uh, using the sacrifices, so too would have Noah's uh, family been able to eat. So they would have had um, meat for sure, and um, uh, I don't know whether there was some supernatural help with plants and things growing, but uh, I'm sure that they had plenty to eat. Um, with regard to your question about the seasons or the month of the year, uh, I want you to remember that this too would be new. You know, Noah lived in a, in a tropical climate. It had never even rained before the flood. And so, um, you know, when, when they came out into a winter and they would see snow or they would see um, um, uh, flooding rains or the wind would blow, Um, That was all brand new to them. So it would have been really, really difficult for them um, to to adjust. I mean, it's just a completely new environment. They would have had to make uh, clothes that would have kept them warm, and they would have to make jackets and uh, use fur of animals. So, uh, I mean, it it would have been a a completely different world that they were 
we're, we're living in. Now, uh, regardless, we're referencing what month it was. And Cindy, I have to confess to you, I, I don't know off the top of my head. I'd have to go dig into my notes to find out. But the months uh, of the year, um, they were using 360-day years then, uh, as as was the case when when uh, Moses um, uh, introduced the law. But Moses changed the months. So the first day, uh, or the, the first month before the flood, would would be different than the than the the months um, when the law came out. So I don't really know off the top of my head. I can find out for I've got it in my notes. I think I figured it out one time. Uh, but um, believe me, the, the the temperature changes, the swings, uh, the wild swings in the weather would have been something really really difficult. I like the way you think, Cindy. Those are the kind of things that I always say. Curious people have the gift of teaching. Here's a question from Dennis. Five minutes left for this half. It went fast. Dennis says, uh, I think it is unfair, even unkind, to share the gospel in countries where believing in Jesus could upset the entire way of life in that culture. Um, well, Dennis, you're wrong, obviously. Uh, that's why um, Jesus told his disciples that they were going to take uh, the, the gospel message uh, first to Jerusalem, then to Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, Dennis, these kind of, of questions and comments always make me uncomfortable because uh, it, it almost seems as though you're charging Jesus with being unfair and unkind, or even worse, unloving. Um, the truth is that cultures where other religions are in the majority the most loving thing we can do is go tell them the truth. And the fact that somebody might get in trouble by converting to Christianity or or somebody might uh, um, uh, cause other people to stumble, you know, in the religion, um, it's almost, Dennis, as though you have a, a sense that, well, all religions are the same and they all lead to the same destination, but that's not true. It's not true. Only Christians, born-again Christians, are going to be in heaven. People really get angry when I say that, but that's the truth. It's not that Christians are better than other people or more deserving. If we were deserving, we would need grace, undeserved favor. But it's only Jesus that washes away sins. Only Jesus fulfilled the law. Only Jesus lived a perfect life without sin, which qualified him to be a sacrifice for us. Only Jesus took the wrath of God, the punishment for our sins, the punishment that a just and holy God has to exact. Let me tell you something. If you've got people that you care about who don't know Jesus, it's your duty. Paul said, I'm obligated to both Greek and Jew to share this message. It's our duty, Dennis, to do it. So anytime you find yourself thinking God is unfair or unkind, then you've got some problems that you've got to deal with, Dennis. This is not a, a difficult question. If you really believe that Jesus is God, God the Son, as well as the Son of God, if you believe that he died, if you believe that he didn't stay dead, that God validated his ministry and his message by raising him from the dead, if you believe that, then we're obligated in accepting that message to go out and share it with others. And if you want to be unfair, if you want to be unkind, keep the gospel, this glorious gospel of grace, keep it to yourself. We can tell a Muslim that they don't have to work really hard, they don't have to be a a martyr, that they don't have to pray six times a day we can tell them that they can be free from religion. And all they have to do is believe. We can tell them to stop striving to please God and instead accept the fact that they're already pleasing to God simply by believing. Only Christians have the message that God is love. You know, you tell a Muslim that God loves them 
tell an Orthodox Jew that God loves them. And they don't get it. They don't have that kind of relationship with God. We do. And there's nothing more loving in this world that we can do, Dennis, other than tell them about this wonderful message. You know, it's really interesting when Jesus died and the disciples became apostles and they went out to share the gospel of grace. The whole world was unbelieving. And all of them but John ended up giving their lives to fulfill that commission. So Dennis, think carefully. Choose your words carefully before you accuse God of being unfair or unkind. Hey, 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our program, the final 30 minutes of the week. I'm really getting excited about church when Cindy said, it's Friday again. You know, we, we went to uh, Friday services. It's been a long, long time now, probably 12 or 13 years maybe even a little bit longer than that. It just got to where we couldn't, I couldn't physically do with my voice uh, four services on Sunday. And I was invited to um, uh, do a uh, conference with a friend of mine uh, at Calvary Chapel in Idaho. And he picked us up from the airport and said, well, we got to go right to the church. We've got church tonight. I said, church on a Friday night? That's unusual. And he said, oh, we love it. And we went, and you know, Friday night it was casual. People laughed or didn't leave. There was no rush to get out because it was a school night or, or Sunday because they were tired and had to go to work the next morning. The fellowship was rich. And as soon as I saw that, I thought, you know, we can change Sunday nights to Friday. Actually, we call this snoff Sunday night on Friday. And uh, I just, I don't know what I would do on Friday night if it wasn't for for uh, for church. So, um Nobody in this audience needed to know that, but I like Friday nights. Here is a question from Pressa. Um, Pastor Ron, is there a distinction between position and function that would permit a woman to preach to a mixed congregation? Um, Pressa, that's a a, a sort of an in-house debate that goes on within the church, and I guess it depends on where you're coming from. Um, uh, we know that women cannot be pastors. Uh, and to teach from a position of authority is very clearly um, forbidden by Scripture. I say very clearly, and yet we got all kinds of churches that mess that up. Um, so so the position um, is is off limits. Now, the function. Now, I know people are hardliners. A lot of them are Southern Baptists uh, in particular. Uh, but even some of my fellow Calvary Chapel brethren who would take a really hardline position. A woman cannot preach from the pulpit on a Sunday morning. Um, I, I wouldn't go that far, Pressa. Um, if, if I would, for example, have the opportunity of Johnny Erickson Tata or Elizabeth Elliot before she went to be with the Lord. Um, I would jump all over that, and nobody in my congregation would assume that I'm letting a, a woman teach from a pastoral position. I would simply introduce uh, a great servant of God, somebody that we can learn from, be encouraged and exhorted by, and and um, um, uh, given the opportunity, I would do that. But nobody at our church would think that she is preaching from a position of authority or from a position of being a pastor. So I would make a distinction between position and function, but probably press it. There are more people uh, who wouldn't make that distinction than are like me who would. I hope that makes sense to you. 
Let's go to a phone call. We got Margaret from Floresville. Margaret, good to hear from you. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. I hope you're doing well, too. We are. Thank you. Okay. My question is concerning the other comment. Uh, I think it was from the uh, email about it being cruel to take what we believe mm-hmm. into a different culture. I mm-hmm. And I... Correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think I am, but I feel like if something, a religion or another faith leads you away from Jesus, that's a tool of the devil, and it's up to us to tell them the good news in the correct way, because there's no other religion that will get you to heaven. That's right. I agree completely. Okay, good, because I always feel like as hard as it is and as ugly as it sounds, or is, it's not that we're better, it's that Jesus is the best and the only, and uh, not to share it is cruel and uh, <laughs> just not fair. Yeah, you know, Margaret, I find it interesting when people say, well, you're judging all other people. They're the ones who are judging us. I mean, if they if they automatically assume that because we say only Christians are going to heaven— if they assume that we think we're better than they are, they're the ones who are exercising judgment. And, uh, you know, there's, the truth is, is mutually exclusive. There can't be two truths or three truths if they contradict one another. And uh, it is our job to let people know that Jesus loves them. Jesus alone died for them. And because he didn't stay dead, Jesus alone has the authority to extend forgiveness of sins. And, you know, what we do is we we take religion and sort of put it all on that same plane instead of saying, no, 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 this isn't about religion at all. Jesus died because he hates religion. And um, uh, we're just communicating that there is um, what Job cried out for. If only there were a mediator between me and God. Um, And Jesus is that man who is the mediator. So you're right, Margaret. I I agree completely. And I feel like God created heaven, it's his heaven, and he's inviting us into it. It's no one else's to take or give permission to get there, and they can't anyway. So it's just, it's, it's. Uh, I, once again, I think it's Satan talking to people's hearts who don't want to believe or are afraid to believe. Or most, worst of all, they're afraid that they aren't welcome. And yeah. that's very yeah. sad. Yeah. You know, Margaret, I think it's, it's more than just the fact that God invites us in. Um, there's there's only two alternatives. We can spend eternity right. with Jesus or separated from him. We call one heaven, we call the other hell. And we have to choose in this life where it's going to be. Now, the invitation goes to everybody. The invitation's been extended to the whole world. All we have to do is RSVP. And if we RSVP by believing in Jesus, then we've chosen to spend eternity with God. But God honors the choice that we make in our lives. He honors that choice in eternity. And Jesus told a parable about this, the man who got in the wedding banquet who didn't have on wedding clothes, and he was told, no, you can't be in here. Uh, and and it's, it's as simple as that. We're going to live forever somewhere. The minute we're right. born, we never die. And we're going to live forever somewhere. We either live with Jesus, we call that heaven, or we're going to live without Jesus, we call that hell. And um, and the choice is 100% ours, but the whole world is invited to make that choice. I Good think point. The Thank you. I have one more quick question. Okay. Do you think there are people? You think there are people that are just they would no matter how horrible hell is, they would rather be there than in heaven. I mean, are there just some spirit or souls that are just so? miserable that they'd be even more miserable if they were in the presence of God all the time? Um, You know, from a practical perspective, um, nobody is going to be more miserable in in, um, heaven than they are in hell. Um, The choice is in while they're alive, they have to make the decision. And the truth is people hate God. God says he loved us when we hated him. And we hate God, and while we're here in this life, then we we um, we so hate Him that we want nothing to do with Him. And when God honors that request, everything changes. In Luke chapter 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus, and the rich man who was suffering torment 
in that place of torment, uh, he wanted to go to the other place. He wanted um, uh, Abraham to let Lazarus come over and just cool his tongue with a drip of water. Uh, He would have done anything to go there. He even asked that somebody be sent to his family to tell them so they don't end up where he is. So I think everybody, I think this is part of what hell is. Everybody will change their perspective when they get there. The problem is it's too late. I was thinking about the demons you talked about that have to be locked up. And it's like, were they in heaven at one time? Uh, yes, all, all they, they were angels who fell. So at one time, they were um, before the throne of God. Hard to imagine them falling, huh? That's Yeah, that's where my question came from. So yeah, I, I'm glad I don't have to figure that out. And I can just be glad <laughs> I, I'm going to be in heaven. I don't have to worry about where they are. But, well, that's exactly right. And, yeah, and I can't wait, time. Margaret. I know. God bless. I know. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Um, Margaret, it was always such a blessing. Um, We're just going to get there. What was the covering? This is from Scott from our mobile app. What was the covering that Noah removed in Genesis chapter 8? Verse 13. Scott, we don't know what the, we we don't have any detail about the the, the material of the covering, Um, but we we know that the ark was covered in pitch, or we'd call it tar, inside and out, and um, evidently there was some sort of covering over the top, maybe just to keep the water out, to keep it as dry as possible, but we're not told what that covering is. But he removed the covering because um, he knew that that wasn't their home anymore. They were going to go out in the world, and they had to remove it so then they could get out. Um, that's all the information that we have, Scott. Thank you very much. Here is an anonymous question also from our mobile app. Um, in what context is Jesus speaking when he says, Do not judge, do not condemn, forgive because the world loves to push them back in our Christian face. Boy, don't they, Anonymous. Um, Do not judge, lest ye be judged, we're told all the time. Unbelievers know that Bible verse. Um, What he's speaking about, we can't judge anybody's heart. That's what he's speaking about. Uh, Remember, he's a very specific context there, and he's not saying that we're not to look at the kind of life they're living and, and tell them they need to make corrections. I mean, we've got the whole of the Bible that tells us what, what righteous living versus unrighteous living is. So we're not judging hearts. For example, and this is often what people will say when they're involved in, in homosexual relationships, well, well, don't judge. God knows my heart. And, and we're saying, look, I, I don't know your heart. I'm not judging you. What I'm saying is what you're doing is identified as sin in the Bible. And sin will separate you from God. So Jesus is simply saying, um, don't judge somebody's heart. You don't know the condition of their heart. But we are told repeatedly by Jesus and, and by the, 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 the letters in the epistles, we're told repeatedly to tell people to repent of their sin. We're told repeatedly to look at their behavior. We're given lists of behaviors that help us identify that which is sinful versus that which is righteous. So he's not saying, you know, everybody can do what they want. What he's saying is, don't judge their heart. Now, anonymous from a Christian perspective, this is important when we're um, ministering to people. I think we Christians are guilty of judging the hearts. Of, of homosexuals. I think the first thing that we think is, oh, God hates them. And, and we have to tell them that God loves them. It needs to break our heart to pronounce any kind of a judgment on someone. And yet, We just don't do it. We see somebody that's living a lifestyle that is 
in opposition to what the Bible tells us, and we get real judgy real quick. And uh, that's the context Jesus saying, don't do that. Don't judge, or you will be judged. Remember, ours is a message of reconciliation. We need to offer people who are in sin hope. Now, what they do with our offer of hope is between them and God. But too many times in the years that I've been sharing Jesus with people, I've seen people that I thought were were beyond help, beyond any possibility of coming to Christ. And I've seen Jesus turn them inside out until they wrestle with him and, and come to a saving faith. So don't judge. Simply let people know how much God loves them. I think, and this will be my last comment in this anonymous, I think too often our presentation of the gospel is filled with don't do's and can't do's instead of our gospel being a message of freedom from sin. You know, following Jesus is not a got to, it's a get to. And because it is, we can tell people that we have a message a message that will fill their hearts with so much hope and so much joy. Let's go to another call. We've got Jimmy on line one. Jimmy, thanks for calling. You're on the air. I've been wanting to ask how are you doing. I've been wanting to ask you a question for a long time. A long time ago, I used to work for a company company, and I had a horrible Jimmy, Jimmy, let me stop you for a minute. I can barely hear you. It's got a really big wind noise or something behind you. Okay. Can you hear me now? A little bit better. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, I, um, in, uh, in the 90s, I had a job and I had a 401k. And the company went bankrupt, right? So I lost my 401k. And I was, I was all concerned that I really don't have a retirement for my daily commitment later on, my daily retirement. Um, I know that God is looking at Jimmy, if I got your question, there's a lot of interference, so if you can hang up and listen to the radio, uh, that would be great. If I got the question right, uh, is it okay to be worried about those kind of things? Truth is, we're going to be worried about them, whether it's okay or not. But here's the thing you've got to do. By putting your life in the hands of our God, you're trusting him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. Um, you know, Jimmy, I, I worked a lot before I got saved. I made a lot of money. Sin cost me all of it. I have no retirement. But you know what? It makes me not want to retire. Now, I'm not advocating that we don't save, that we don't have 401ks or pensions. I'm, I'm not saying that at all. But um, I, I honestly don't spend one minute of one day ever worrying about whether or not I'm going to be okay in my old age. God has sustained me. God has blessed me. Um, you know, Paula and I, uh, we make jokes to each other all the time about what life is going to be like in the nursing home. But... But, you know, that's just jokes. We, we really, God has been so faithful that we have no doubt that he is going to be faithful uh, as we get older. I mean, we're already pretty old, but um, I, I just think worry about money is one of those things that the enemy uses. The world also uses it to get our focus off of Jesus. So, Jimmy, if that wasn't the the uh, direction your question took, please forgive me, but we just couldn't hear uh, this time on the connection, and maybe uh, we can try it again Monday if I really messed up. Thank you for calling, Jimmy. We love you. God bless you. Here is a question from Margaret, different Margaret. Um, Pastor Ron, do you believe that everything happens for a reason? Um, Margaret, not I, not in the way that I think you mean it, um, you know, we've got a, a sort of a fatalistic view of life. Well, you know, something terrible happened, but everything happens for a reason, so it's going to be okay. I don't, I don't believe that at all. 
Um, I think God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose, so good things and bad things. Um, I think God, um, Margaret uses his sovereign power, um, sort of like a a Rubik's Cube. You know, we we present a Rubik's Cube to him with all of the, the colors all mixed up. And God, in a few twists and turns, puts all the colors where they're supposed to be. I think God will do that for all of us. But that's not because we have this fatalistic view that everything happens for a reason. You know, I've seen people, Margaret, who, who, who faced horrible calamity because of their sin. Say, well, you know, everything happens for a reason, so God's going to make this okay. I, that's not true. That's not true. Some things happen because we mess up. Some things happen. And they just happen. Try telling a parent who's lost a child that everything happens for a reason. It's just not true. We live in a fallen, ugly world. So I think everything that happens falls under the purview of the sovereignty of God. But if I'm reading your question right, not the way you mean it. God will take the messes we've made and turn them into good things, turn them into blessings. Beauty from ashes, the psalmist writes. But believe me, God is involved deeply in everything that happens. And when bad things happen to us because we've rebelled against God, that's not on God, that's on us. Here's a question that I could spend the next 35 minutes on, and I've only got five minutes, so Allison, I'm going to do this very quickly. Um, What will the church look like in the next 25 years? Um, Allison, this is one thing that keeps me awake at nights. Um... You know, the Bible talks about a great falling away, an apostasy. Um, I think we're in that period of time where we're going to watch that apostasy. I think the remnant of true believers is going to appear to shrink. Now, the obvious exception, Allison, would be if there was one more great move of God's Spirit, which is a source of my prayers all the time. I would like to see one more huge revival before Jesus comes. But absent that, and that's, again, the sovereignty of God, absent that, I think we've already entered the last day scenario that Paul describes writing to the churches in Thessalonica and then writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we're, we're experiencing this falling away. We're experiencing compromise. We're experiencing um, um, just a departure from the Word of God. And that's what I think the church is going to look like to the world. I mean, Allison, if you look at what the church, what's happened to the church in in Europe, um, it was once a thriving church, a thriving um, Christian population. And now it's just dead, these huge buildings sitting virtually empty. Now remember, God always has a remnant, even in Europe. But the issue here is they get smaller and smaller. And I believe that's what we're seeing now. Now let me take it one step further, Allison. I don't know what the church is going to look like in the next two years. Uh, I've said repeatedly on this program that I think with uh, this this the post quarantine church, uh, I I don't believe that churches are going to be the same in terms of the numbers of people attending uh, as before the virus. I mean, we're we're talking seven weeks, and I think when everybody is no longer thinking about this. I think the churches are going to be considerably emptier. And I think that because I know the enemy and I know how spiritually lazy that we can be as Christians and we, well, I'll just watch online. But but pretty soon that's just the beginning of a drifting away. 
Now, again, I'm grateful that we have online services. we got the technology to do it. But that never should replace church. And I think we're going to see much smaller churches. The work of God is still going to get done. I would rather have a smaller number of people who are truly committed than a huge group of people just so I can say, well, look at how many people my church has. But I just think the churches are going to be smaller. I think attendance is going to dwindle. I also think that we're going to see um, a lot of false teachers proliferate. They, we've got enough of them now, but I think we're going to see that proliferation of, of false teachers again because Jesus talks about that in the last days. So um, I hope that we will look like, and the church that you go to, Allison, I hope and pray that you'll look like the Church of Philadelphia. Read uh, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus led to the Church of, of um Philadelphia, but I'm fearful that more churches will look like the church at Laodicea, and that's, I hope I'm wrong, but that's what it appears like to me. So beyond that, Allison, uh, I really don't know. Hey, we've had a great week. Thank you. Uh, Tonight at 7 o'clock, I'm going to be studying out of 2 Peter chapter 1. You can watch it at calvaryessay.com. On Sunday, I'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And happy Mother's Day to all the mothers out there. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. I'll see you on Monday, Lord willing. God bless. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapels, The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. The Word to Stand On for Life.